This is episode 91 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore Events Podcast. We're finishing up the 2014 Annual Enrichment Conference with Jared Wilson. This is session four from Wednesday night, titled The Eternal Supremacy of Christ. It has been a great
And the friendship that I had with Richard was something that communicated to me that it is possible by the power of the Spirit to love your life not even unto death. Richard had come to trust that Jesus is better than life itself. That the love and approval and righteousness of Christ is, was better than his next breath. We have seen in 2 Corinthians 3 that the gospel goes after the heart. And the Holy Spirit does this work. We can muster up the strength to conform superficially to some of the law's demands. Obviously, we cannot be perfect. But we can project the appearance of perfection, or at least moral turpitude, of obedience of some kind. To have the heart changed, which is what the gospel means to do, the spirit must do the work. And so it's a supernatural work. It goes beneath the flesh into the heart, to the soul of a person. And it imparts a glory, we have seen, that is bigger than that work of obedience according to the law. Um, bigger than our obedience, our, our work according to the law, because it is conformed to Christ's perfect obedience to the law. And now we see that the apex of this glory, the source of this glory, and the, the um, savor of this glory is where Paul turns next. So please read with me verse 12, beginning in verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. We're going to ask the Father to send the Spirit to help us see the Son. Father, these men and women are preparing to return to uh, the trenches of their ministries. We pray that you would give them great strength, that you uh, would have used this time to nourish them in your gospel, that you would ground their approval in the work of your Son given to them purely by your grace, received purely by their faith, that they would go so bold, so confident, in your son. Some are going back to some very difficult ministry situations and circumstances. But Father, we pray that you would fill them up, not just with good information, but with the power of your spirit to love their lives, not even unto death. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Well, I want to begin with the last verse, with verse 18 first. And then we're going to come back to what comes before that. I want to start with verse 18, which says that the way that we change is not by mustering up strength or knuckling down in our good intentions. Uh, in Philippians chapter 2, um, Paul says we don't work up our salvation. We work out our salvation. And he is quickly to say because it is something that God has worked into us. It's not something that we conjure up ourselves or gin up ourselves. And here we see that the change that we must exhibit transformation, one of the key values of your association, transformation comes by, quote-unquote, beholding the glory of the Lord. We are made holy by God himself as we behold the vision of his Son as illumined by the Spirit. Now, we have to get this order right, this, this order of beholding the Son and then being changed. Because if we do not have the gospel and personal holiness in the right order, we're going to end up losing them both, actually. The glory of God, when beheld with a liberated face, the unveiled face, transforms those who behold into the likeness of Christ. And Paul's quick to say, this comes from the Spirit. This doesn't come from us. So Paul's essentially saying, we become holy by seeing Jesus. We become holy by seeing Jesus. Really seeing Jesus. Beholding in this way is becoming. To behold the glory of Christ 
um, in, in this sense. It's not just to notice him, it's not just to glance at him, but to be captivated by him, to be captured by him, to be enthralled by him. Beholding is not simply the sideways glance, it's not simply a, a perfunctory nod in his direction. It is a scene that changes, a scene that transforms. It's a scene that stirs the affections. Now, we understand this on a, um, on a very rudimentary level, the reaction that happens, for instance, when you see something beautiful. This is a sort of illustration that I use um, when I'm um, discipling people about evangelism. People find it very difficult to share Christ, and it's a way to sort of press on, um, you know, to, um, to press on their affections, to bring some conviction, a little bit to say, when you're up in the morning early and to see the sunrise, does, is it difficult when you see the sunrise to say, that's beautiful? Is it difficult to take a picture of that and then post it online and say, look at this beautiful sunset that I saw? Many young people, those um, you know, in my church especially, but most young people have no trouble sharing the music that they find enjoyable or the movies that they find funny. You, you need to see this movie. It's so fantastic. What's happening there? It's, it's an act of worship. Now, not necessarily like sinful idolatry, but what it is is this has captured me in some way. It's affected me in some way. And I can't help but talk about it. I, I, I have to share this because I found it important. I found it meaningful. I found it moving. C.S. Lewis says, we praise what we find praiseworthy. So if I'm not sharing the gospel, what does that mean about how I regard Jesus? It means that I'm not seeing him in a, at least, publicly praiseworthy way. That I would hide his glory and report it to myself. So when you see Christ in such a way that it captures you, that it enthralls you, that he captivates you with his glory, it changes you. Your affections are stirred. Now, the next question that often gets asked, or the question that I get asked as I talk about revival, gospel wakefulness, that sort of thing, is this. How do I get that? Like, how do I get it? And I wish there were a, like a gospel wakefulness switch. <laughs> or that I could just say, what do you mean? Just be gospel awakened. And have someone say, oh, okay. I'll be awakened to the gospel. But we all know, preachers, yes, you all know, it doesn't work that way, does it? Love Jesus. And there's some disconnect there. One evening when my children were little, we were having dinner around the table, and Grace, our, our younger daughter, um, is our picky eater. She's gotten a lot better over the last few years, but there was a time where she just was very you know, persnickety about what she ate. And my wife and my older daughter, who eat lots of things and you know have lots of tastes, and we're trying to convince her to try some dish. I don't know if it was a particular vegetable or something that didn't look good, but as they're eating it, they're going, mm, this is so good. Grace, you need to try this. Grace, why don't you like this? This is, this, this is delicious. And Grace said something that was so profound. She didn't know it was profound at the time. She said this. You can't decide to just like something. You have to actually like it. <laughs> and she said, your taste buds have to change for something. And that's exactly right. You can't just decide to like something. You, you either like it or you don't. And perhaps it was an acquired taste, but you know if you don't like it. And so something must happen. Our spiritual taste buds must be changed to find the glory of Christ delicious. You can't just decide, oh, I'll be in awe of this. You're either in awe of it or you are not. The veil must be removed. So we don't get this change from the law by someone telling us, be changed. There must be a spiritual animation at work, a spiritual energy at work. The Spirit must be doing its work to respond to such a command. Without that spiritual work, without the Lord who is the Spirit, the Spirit who is the Lord, doing this work to change the taste buds, to wake us up, all you're doing is throwing instructions at numb senses, at a corpse, essentially. 
The holiness of Christ-likeness comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. But this doesn't mean, and I hope this is not how any of this is being received, especially last night's talk. This doesn't mean that we're passive, especially Christians. If you are a Christian indwelled by the Holy Spirit, you have the energy, you have the power to respond to the Lord's calling. As Dallas Willard says, the gospel is not opposed to effort, but to earning. So it's not about not doing things. It's about understanding that the approval from God comes from Christ's work and not your work. So then let's look at some, some efforts that you can put into place by the grace of God to help yourself behold the glory of Jesus. Maybe you want to start with going outside. I think one reason we aren't captivated by Christ's glory is because we have a diminished capacity to receive something so big. And I don't want to take for granted that most of you live in a very beautiful part of the country. New England, where we live, is a very beautiful part of the country, Vermont, the Green Mountain State. When we first moved there, we couldn't stop looking around at everything. Loved being outside. Whether it was winter or spring or summer, and especially fall, where the trees are fire. The mountains just look like this patchwork of red and gold. God is showing off. And we would look at it and go, I can't believe we live here. And four years later, we still live in the same place, coming up on five years. And I've stopped kind of looking around. Busyness takes over. The, you know, hecticness takes over. Hurry sickness takes over. When I'm in the car outside, I'm usually looking at the clock on the car to see if I'm going to make it to where I'm going on time or how much time I have to do what I need to do. Or I'm just looking at the road. I'm not looking around. Or I'm in my office. I'm in my study. Or I'm in the hospital room. Or I'm in the living room. Rarely do I just go outside and be. Think. We're privileged enough to live in a place where there is no cell coverage. Privilege is, is right. So even if I wanted to fill around with my phone, I couldn't. Many of us, even those of us who live in beautiful places, need to remind ourselves to turn some things off, put some things down. Don't just do something, sit there. You, you get that one on the way home. <laughs> Just be still and know that God is God. I think a lot of the activity, a lot of the energy, a lot of the busyness is functional idolatry in some way. Some of you um, won't take naps, and the reason why you don't take naps is because you think the world will fall apart if you don't lay down. I mean, if you lay down. But you're not God. If you take a nap, when you get up, the problems will still be there. The world will still be spinning. I can't tell you how profoundly settling in God it is for me at the end of a day in study, in meetings, at the coffee shop, in the rough going to the counseling office, to just go out on my back deck and sit and stare at the mountains. Just stare. I have actually some of my best, um, some of my best sermon materials, some of my best writing. I'm not even trying to do that. Like I think I'm studying my sermon, I need to be in my office with the commentaries open and, and, and all that. Some of the best material that I get is just sitting outside and just talking to God. And my brain can think, there's a clarity that's there. But when you're outside, when you turn off all of the little things that occupy your attention, all the shiny things, and you get outside and you just sit and just be, your capacity to receive bigness, you start to feel really small. And the bigness of God begins to shape and form you to receive more of his bigness. I love what John Piper says about the sky as an enemy of lust, just as an example of the kind of idolatry being outside can help you with. Let me read from one of his articles I found very helpful. He says, do you know why there are no windows on adult bookstores? Do you know why there are no windows on certain kinds of nightclubs in the city? I suppose your answer would be, well, because they don't want people looking in and getting a free sight. But that's not the only reason. Do you know why? Because they don't want people looking out at the sky. Do you know why? Because the sky is the enemy of lust. And I just ask you, you think back on your struggles. 
The sky is a great power against lust. Pure, lovely, wholesome, beautiful, powerful, large-hearted things cannot abide the soul of a sexual fantasy at the same time. I remember as I struggled with these things in my teenage years and in my college years, I knew how I could fight most effectively in those days. And I developed other strategies over the years that have proved very effective. And one way of fighting was simply to get out of the dark places, get out of the lonely rooms, get out of the boxed-in places, get out of the places where it's just small me and my mind and what I can do with it, and get out where I'm just surrounded by color and beauty and bigness and loveliness. And I know that when I used to sit in my front yard at 122 Bradley Boulevard with a notepad in my hand, a pen, and trying to write a poem, at that moment my heart and my body were light years away from the sexual fantasizing I was tempted, tempted by again and again in the late night, quiet, secluded in-house moments. There's something about bigness, he says. There's something about beauty that helps battle against the puny, small, cruddy use of the mind to fantasize about sexual things. And so I just commend to you, he says, don't let that happen. Battle lust. Give yourself over to the ministry of the sky and let it help you find freedom from lust. The scriptures say the heavens declare the glory of God. What you're focused on will shape you. It will lead you. And so resting from the spaces where you are an acting sovereign and getting out into the spaces where God's sovereignty is more palpable will help you see Christ as bigger. And when you're not staring into space, but you're doing your working time, perhaps you need to be more mindful about what you're reading, what you're looking at. Those of you on social media, who are you following? What voices are you listening to? Are they routinely pointing you to Christ? There are some very helpful Christian voices on Twitter, for instance, or even on Facebook or in the blog world. And many of them give us helpful tips for ministry, ways to be more effective in our leadership, encouragement, inspiration. But if they are not routinely pointing us to Christ, we want to make sure that they are a minority in what we are taking in. And that the majority of the Christian voices we listen to when we're looking at our shiny devices are pointing us to Jesus Christ. It can be a very helpful tool that way, actually. Don't, don't waste your social media. What are you reading in your books? Pastors who love leadership books, preachers who love commentaries and theology. Are you reading those, the kind of books that turn you to Christ? Books that help you adore Jesus. Another helpful thing I remember Piper saying at a conference, this wasn't in a book or anything, he just said it during a Q&A session, was this. The problem with commentaries is they can be sermon killers because many commentaries don't have the word oh in them. When I heard that I thought, I want to be the kind of person, if the Lord will let me continue to write, that write, what are the kind of person that writes books that say oh? About Jesus. I don't want to just talk about Jesus. I want to say, oh, and help people say, oh, about Jesus. So as you're looking at your helps for your sermon or just for your daily Christian life, are you reading things that will shape your heart, that point you to the gospel, that will help you delight in the doctrine, worship in the theology? The incarnation and the Trinity, these very deep doctrines and the central doctrines of the Christian faith. We look at those things and often we try to do math. Holy God and holy man simultaneously, not part God, not part man, not sometimes God, sometimes man. 100% God, 100% man all the time. How does that work? I don't know. Augustine says, let others wrangle. I will wonder. And the same is with the Trinity. The Trinity is not meant to make us do the math. It's meant to make us go to our knees. And say, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. In Augustine's Confessions, he says this, But where in all that long time was my free will? Right? So now he's struggling with the free will predestination thing. And he says, from what deep sunken hiding place was it suddenly summoned forth in the moment in which I bowed my neck to your easy yoke? 
and my shoulders in your light burden, Christ Jesus, my helper and redeemer. How lovely, not logical, how lovely I suddenly found it to be free from the loveliness of those vanities, so that now it was a joy to renounce what I had been so afraid to lose. For you, for you cast them out of me, O oh, true and supreme loveliness. You cast them out of me and took their place in me, you who are sweeter than all pleasure. I don't write theology like that anymore. Or Martin Luther who says, Oh, I wish to devote my, my mouth and heart to you. Do not forsake me for a moment, for on my own I would easily reckon all. Or Charles Spurgeon more recently, I thank thee that this, which is a necessity of my new life, is also its greatest delight. So I do at this hour feed upon thee. See what they're doing? They're not just doing theological measurements. They're not just teaching and instructing doctrine. They're delighting, they're exulting in what the scriptures teach. And when they do that, they help us do that. John Owen, another example of beholding the glory of Christ, our very subject, John Owen said, herein would I live, herein would I die. Herein would I dwell in my thoughts and affections to the withering and consumption of all the painted beauties of this world, unto the, unto the crucifying all things here below, until they become unto me a dead and deformed thing, no way meet for affectionate embraces. Theology, doctrine, the word of God itself is not meant to simply amuse our brain, but to thrill our hearts. And this is what real holiness looks like. It looks like worship. If holiness makes you look like you're angry at somebody, you're doing it wrong. I mean, that, that dour, stoic, holy face. Does that commend Christ? Does that commend joy? I'm not talking about times of lament, times of mourning. I just mean the times when you are feeding on Christ. What does holiness look like to you? A very staid seriousness? Or like Christ is beautiful, lovely, satisfying, sufficient. He has filled you. So as we speak of reading and studying, of course we remember that the primary place that we go to see Christ's glory is not in the sky. It's not in the commentaries. It's not in the theology books. It's in the written word of God. Breathed out by the Holy Spirit, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, sufficient, but how you come to that word, how you come to the written word of God, will shape your capacity to see Christ's glory there. We see the glory of Christ most compellingly, most powerfully, most authoritatively, and most inerrantly in his word. When we look for Christ in his gospel. If you're simply reading the word to check something off of your religious duty list, to get some brownie points, to study for your next Bible exam, you're not going to get out of it all that you should. If we simply come to the Word in order to use it, that it might serve our next sermon or writing project, rather than so it might use us, that it might master us, we're going to miss the glory that's bound up in this Word. We must come to the Word, not like Bartlett's book of quotations. The way that I was trained initially to preach, growing up in the particular movement of my generation was this, come up with a good idea, a topic, a felt need, then come up with some sub-points, some, some steps, some instructions that would achieve the felt need that you're addressing, and then find Bible verses that support each of those instructions. And I, I didn't know any different. I thought the people who know what they're talking about are telling me this is how you do it. And this was before Bible Gateway and all that sort of thing. So it was hard work going through Strong's Concordance looking it up. And if you wanted a particular word, you couldn't find it in the translation they were using, you just use another translation. So as you're preaching, you know, every verse has to, you know, to tell people to look at a different translation to see what you're... And as I look back now, I'm thinking I was using the Bible to, to support my points rather than having my points point to the Bible. 
The Bible was serving my sermon. My sermon wasn't serving the Bible. I was treating the Bible like it was some kind of fortune cookie dispenser. We can't come to the Bible like that and see the glory of Christ in as great a way. We can't come to the Bible as if it's just a religious history source book, although its history is impeccable. We must come as if the, it is the word of truth, as if it is sharp and piercing, as if it is powerful and satisfying, as if it is sweet and sufficient, authoritative and delectable. We must look for Christ and his gospel in all of his pages. He told us to do this in a way after his resurrection as he's sidling up to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he, I wish the sermon was there. He probably preached to them the greatest Christ-centered expository sermon in the history of Christ-centered expository sermons. But it says he revealed to them everything about himself from the Law and the Prophets. Showing them from the Old Testament, you know, what we call the Old Testament, where he was in all of those pages. And the result, they say later, is our hearts burned within us. In the Word of God, we see Jesus as sovereign and saving, as a foe to sin and a friend to sinners, as servant and as king, as shepherd and as lamb, as priest and as sacrifice, as God and as man. And you cannot get into Christ unless His Word has gotten into you. If you want to see the glory of Christ, we must increase our capacity to behold bigness. We must, of course, drink from the Word as if it is life. And we must also go to our knees, bowing ourselves before his sovereignty, before his glory. Robert Murray Machine says, what a man is alone on his knees before God, that he is and no more. Forget the accolades, forget the diplomas, forget the pats on the back, forget the trophies, the merit badges, the title on the door. Who you are before God is who you are, period. And since prayer is acknowledged helplessness, the more we will pray, the more we are abiding in the strength of God alone. The more we pray, the more we are surrendering thoughts of our own glory. The more we are unbusying ourselves with the enterprise of our own glory. Every day we're building our own Babel Towers, monuments to our own achievements and reputation. And in prayer we lay down the bricks. We lay down the trowel. And we let God knock the towers down. Knock down my tower, God. Let my life be only a monument to you. In prayer, we take on the right spiritual proportion. We are needy, we're helpless, we're dependent, we're faithful, that the glory of Christ might more fully fill us. So we're learning now that holiness comes only from God. It is imputed in the righteousness of Christ to us. It's increased in the Spirit-sanctifying work. And so we humble ourselves knowing this. All comes from God. All comes from grace. All hail the giver of grace. By whom I am what I am. Therefore, I will bow the knee. I will bend my knee. I will pray prayers of thankfulness. I will plead for mercy. I will ask for more Christ-likeness. So enjoy, in enjoying the glory of the heavens, and especially in the meditation on the word and supplication on our knees, we are seeking out Jesus, and one of my favorite hymns, that's one of my favorite lines, Jesus, I am resting in the joy of what thou art. I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. I love that. The heart is so great. We spend our lives seeing more of the greatness, exploring more of the depths of the greatness of God. To find out more and more how great Jesus' loving heart is, we must look to him only and always. We might miss something if we're not looking at it. I might miss a part of the greatness that I need to see. So we must picture ourselves at the foot of this cross, which both humbles us and emboldens us, the place of intercession between God's wrath and His mercy. And then we look to it as the children of Israel look to the source of their curse in Numbers chapter 21. I'm sure you remember the story. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And many people died. And Moses interceded. He prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses something really curious. Maybe this was part of Jesus' sermon to the disciples. Explain this. The Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. 
And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if the serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. To escape the serpent's wrath, the Israelites must look at the serpent's face. Similarly, the only way to escape from God's wrath is to get towards God himself. The safety from God is in God. So as Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 3.18, if we want to be transformed into the likeness of Christ, if we want to have what we need to be saved, we must look to Christ. Ray Orland says, stare at the glory of God until you see it. Now you can look and not see, but you cannot see without looking, so we have to keep looking. If you want sanctification unto holiness, it's not found in obedience in the law. The law cannot empower its own implications. It cannot produce adherence to itself. Only the gospel can do that. So holiness can only be found in Christ. And so we get on our knees as the word comes to our hearts and comes to our minds and we cry out to the Father with the Greeks that to Philip, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Show me Jesus. Show me Jesus. So now let's look at verses 12 through 17. We see that the way that we are transformed is by beholding the glory of Christ. Coming back to verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yet to this day, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now we will get at the, the, the positive view here, what, what Paul is putting forth, by seeing in some way the negative contrast. And the negative contrast of what he is saying is very disturbing. What he is saying implicitly is outside of the transforming vision of Christ. Earlier he talked about the ministry of condemnation. Outside of the transforming vision of Christ, the darkness is ever-present and yet invisible because the veil is there. You don't see that the glory is fading, that the glory is going away. How disturbing is that? To think there is glory and there's not. So you can be lost and not know it. John Cramp in his book, Out of Their Faces, Into Their Shoes, a book on evangelism came out in oh, the mid-90s, I think, has these laws of lostology. And one of the most instructional things to me was something that I knew but need someone to spell off me, which is this. Lost people don't always know they're lost. Like we have this mythical, iconic view of the lost person who's just, they just feel so empty. They're just searching and seeking and they're just waiting for some Christian to walk up and say, have you heard the good news? So that they can say, I've been waiting to hear the good news. Where have you been? But all of us in this room know people who are lost as a goose and are fine and dandy with it. What do they need your Jesus for? They think they're a pretty good person. A couple of us um, stopped by Dairy Queen last night. We thought we were just getting blizzards. Ended up talking to a couple of young people who were lost as a goose and didn't know it. And so as my wife and I were engaging one employee, Jeff and his wife were engaging another employee, and one thing that the, the, the fellow said was this, you know, I believe that really the golden rule, so he's quoting the Bible, is really what we, ought to, we all ought to do. And so Jeff said, do you think that you're a good person? And he said, oh yes, in fact, I, I, I love people more than I love myself. I, I neglect myself to love other people. In essence, and he agreed with this, he was his own God. Now all you can do is, is share the gospel with him. But he was already set. He was already happy in and of himself. He thought he already had it all figured out. He was The veil was there. He didn't realize that he was lacking glory. A veil lied over his heart. And Christians, those who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, can in some ways begin to harden their heart 
to have their love grow cold, to become numb and not even know. Autopilot is the grace of God that keeps us saved. A veil may lay over our heart in some way, in some area where the gospel needs to get in. It remains unlifted, and it, as it lays there, it, it, it obscures things that we ought to see. Even if you're reading the Old Covenant, even if you're familiar with the stories of the Bible, the laws of the Bible, and even, actually, until the Spirit intervenes when you're hearing the gospel. There are gospel-preaching people who have not been saved by the gospel because they are trusting themselves. But one way the Spirit wakens us to the Gospel is by showing us the growing futility of this righteousness by God. And the veil is lifted by the Spirit. This is the work of the Spirit. It's lifted enough to show that such glory of ourselves, of our own righteousness, is fading and fleeting. I grew up in the church was always a quote-unquote good kid. Saw myself, others saw me as a leader in some ways. So I was the president of the Christian club in high school. I led small groups and taught classes even as a teenager. When our church was between youth pastors and I was a senior in high school, I became the interim youth pastor in some way, teaching on Wednesday nights to our youth group. I was on the trajectory of ministry since junior high had done called me into ministry. All of the bad things that my friends sort of departed and went off to do, to drink and have sex and all of that sort of thing, I abstained from that. I was, the, I was the good kid. I was the one that all the parents wanted their daughters to date, but none of the daughters wanted to date. <laughs> the good boy. The friend. sort of facade over all the things that were going on inside. So as I mentioned before, I grew up with a stutter. I also, as part of that, because of that, or causing that, I'm not sure, this crippling sense of inadequacy, a, a need for approval, a need for confidence. I had very, we call it back then, self-esteem. I had very low self-esteem. I was very neurotic, very paranoid, very insecure, very scared, very nervous. And in, in projecting this image and then trying to medicate secret sins, I started to cultivate in my life. Things that would make me feel powerful, that would make me feel loved, that would make me feel secure in some way. I was uh, in the fifth grade when I saw my first pornographic images. Uh, a friend on the bus brought one of his dad's magazines. This was before he had access to video or internet or anything like that. I have forgotten a lot of pornography since then, but those first images, when I was 12 years old in that magazine, are still here. And then of course as I got older and had access to the internet, free reign to sort of cultivate this sin and indulge in this sin, it made me a hard person, a cold person. It helped me to turn further and further into myself while still sort of projecting this outward have it all together image. And I took those secret sins right into my marriage. My wife had no idea what she was marrying. Because I could pretend, I could act good enough, well enough. But when you don't have accountability, when you don't have repentance, when you don't have the work of the gospel in your heart, become beastly. And so after several years of really hardening my wife against me with my coldness, with my self-interest, there finally came the day where she said, I don't, I don't love you anymore. I don't want to be married to you anymore. You're not the person that I thought you were. You've deceived me. You've tricked me. Coming out of that, um, she was really my, my idol in some way. Um, and when you idolize someone, 
you end up putting the weight of God on them and inadvertently abusing them. They, you know, people cannot give you what only God can give you. And so it was like my God had been taken away, or as if my God had said, I, I don't approve of you. I don't want to have anything to do with you. And as my world began to fall down, all the things that I were, was looking to and looking for to bring me happiness, I wanted to be a writer since I was a little kid. And so I thought, you know, I'll try writing. I couldn't, I couldn't get that going. I was out of ministry. And, you know, certainly as I look back now, I see that God, you know, I wasn't qualified. The Lord was keeping me out for my protection and the protection of anyone that I would come into contact with. And so I was home by myself, we had these two little girls, and as depression creeped in, I began to think, you know what, how, how, I'll show her that I love her, I'll, I'll, I'll take my own life, because if I'm the person who has hurt her the most, I'll prove to her that I really love her by taking myself out. And so I wrestled for months and months and months with the, this creeping darkness over me and thoughts of suicide the days of just not feeling anything, of just total numbness. One of the girls would be hurt or upset, or, and I just would have no feeling whatsoever about it. Or other days where just the littlest thing would turn me into tears. We were sleeping in separate bedrooms, basically living like roommates, and on a regular basis as I would sort of appeal for Becky to have a change of heart, she would remind me, no, we're done. We're done. This is over. You, you find out that God is your only hope when God is your only hope. And so I was doing all that I could do. I've never read the scriptures like I did then. I've never prayed like I did then. Desperate prayers, spending many nights in the guest bedroom of our house, face down on the carpet, just crying into the floor. Prayers where you don't even have words, you know, some of my prayers are just like the word please over and over again. Please, please, please. Help me. Do something. And I would go through the Bible and I would have a journal and I'd write down, you know, not my thoughts, but every Bible verse that I thought applied to me, and I filled up journals really quickly. Oh, this this means something different than it did before. I was utterly broken. So I felt crushed, I felt laid low, I felt like everything had been taken away from me, that the even floor itself would fall out from under me. I just wanted to die. And I remember one evening laying face down in the room, just crying out to God, asking for help. And I could hear, not, not audibly, but these specific words that the Lord brought to my heart through the Holy Spirit, these words, I love you and I approve of you. Now, I, I knew that God didn't approve of what I had done or what I had done to my marriage or what I had made of myself. I knew that. I knew in that moment that He approved of me in Christ. But just hearing those words, the words I was so desperate for, to just be known totally, that someone would see all of my mess, know it, set, and at the point where anyone in their right mind would see the kind of person I was and reject me, the God of the universe who was holy and just and vengeful and wrathful would look at me and say, I love you and I approve of you. It changed everything for me. So I read the prodigal son story now, and he's in that fixed eye, and it says, he came to himself. Or in some translations, he came to his senses. That's what happened to me. Like the gospel light bulb went on. I came to myself. Everything changed. Now, of course, I couldn't go to my wife and say, you know, good news, God approves of me. <laughs> and have her say, oh, well, God approves of you. No, what I did was through the power of the Spirit. I had no idea where I found this energy. But loved my wife for a good year with no expectation of reciprocation, with continued coldness that I had created. And that's what kind of helped me was understanding she is responding this way because I have made her this way. So if this is how she is to me for the rest of my life, you know what? 
It's okay, and I will be okay because God loves me and He approves of me. I had nothing to fear. It, it, it hurt, it was painful, and it was difficult. But as that year went by, and, and, and every now and then she would remind me, we're done, I don't care what you're doing. It, it's over. And I knew the threat of divorce was just sort of hanging over me. There was one Friday morning, or before she left for work, she basically said, I want you out of the house. This is, you know, this is it. And I put in at least 12 months of loving her unconditionally, sacrificially, selflessly. And I thought, this is terrible, but I'm, I'm going to be okay. So I asked for the weekend. I didn't know where I was going to go. I didn't, I didn't have any money. I didn't know what I was going to do. As she left for work, I called my father and said, hey, I, I'm going to have to leave the house. And, and so I'm probably going to need an apartment. And I don't know if you could help me with that. And, um, at lunchtime, Becky called the house. She said, I don't, I don't want you to leave. I, I, I don't know what's happening. I know, but I know that you're different. I know that you're changed. And I don't know what that means, but um, I'm ready to work on whatever that means. She had had, between that morning and that lunchtime, her, her, her own moment of gospel wakefulness. And we had a lot to work on and, and, and sort out, but when a husband and wife are on the same page, like they want the same thing, and they've both been broken by sin, and are trusting totally in the grace of God, you can't stop them. And the place that we are now, you know, I don't understand people who say, you know, if I had to do it all over again, I'd do it exactly the same way. I, I would do a million things differently. <laughs> I have a thousand and one regrets. But I look back now and I see what God was doing. And I don't think, I know we wouldn't be where we are today if it weren't for that experience. So I don't know what you think about the gospel-centered thing, or the gospel centrality thing. I know for some it's just the latest thing. It's on all the books, some of my books. It's, you know, it's the way to sell a conference. It's the way to sell blogs. It's, a, it's just the latest fad. But for me, gospel centrality is, is not a fad. It saved my life. It's, it's breath for me. It's blood for me. And I'll tell you, the sort of church that we were in at the time this was going on, every week handed out a new set of ways to live successfully and victoriously. And it had even a little notebook. You could put the notes in to save. So I had this notebook full of instructions. Ways to be a better whatever, including husband and father. And not a single one of them helped me in that moment. I couldn't do them. And my opportunity was gone. The veil was removed, and I saw Christ, and the Spirit set me free. And now with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, I am being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Because what I see in Christ now is what I saw then. He alone is satisfying. He alone is sovereign. He alone is saving. He is supreme. I cannot behold Him and desire anything or anyone else. He is Himself, Hebrews 1.3 says, the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of His nature. The beams of His radiance, like the beams of the sun, emanate and converge into an overwhelming study of glory that the heart cannot express. It's that joy inexpressible, full of glory. The Bible writers, the authors in the Bible, they're, like, they're ransacking their vocabulary to find things that would, might do justice to the glory of God. Our mind traces in the Word of God some of these numerous beings of glorious radiance that are coming out of Christ. They speak to us in themselves in very full and rich and brilliant ways. We see in the names of Jesus some of these beings of radiance. He is the Christ. He is the Lord. He is the Almighty. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is Emmanuel. He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is Rabbi, Teacher. He is God's only begotten Son. He is the Son of David. He is the Word of God. He is the Great I Am. 
We see in the vocations of Christ some of these beams of radiance converging, exploding in the radiance of His splendor, that He is our advocate. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is the bridegroom. He is the deliverer. He is the redeemer. He is the good shepherd. He is the great high priest. He is the Messiah. He is the horn of salvation. He is the son of man. He is the mediator. He is Christus Victor. He is the Lord, the resurrected God over sin and death. We see in all of the facets of the atonement some of the radiance of his glory. That he would be the Lamb of God who makes the propitiation. That he would be the ransom. That he is our expiation. That he is our righteousness. We see in the symbols of Christ more and more of this glory. That he would be the bread of life. The chief cornerstone. The way, the truth, and the life. That he would be the gate or the door. That he is the rock. That he is the vine, that he is the morning star, that he is the light of the world. He is the priest who is the sacrifice, the judge who takes the punishment, the shepherd who is himself. All of these are blinding rays of his awesomeness. And we could go on and on and on. John says that we recorded all the things that he said and did just in his life. All the books in the world couldn't contain them. So is, is there any wonder that we'll be worshiping and adoring him for all eternity? Because he is the eternal God. His supremacy, His supreme glory will cover all of the cosmos. And so we must return again and again to Christ. Bask in Him in His finished work. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He says to the cosmos, stay right there in space. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And he has the name above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Who is this who comes from Edom? Crimson garments from Basra. He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, says he, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Since we have such a hope for us, we are very bold. Father, this evening we will um, eat and drink of the flesh and blood of your Son. We ask that you would help us to do it in remembrance, as your Son instructed, and in awe. Help us to repent, help us to commit to reconcile, help us to, to take of these elements in a worthy manner, to examine ourselves. Father, give us greater and greater faith. Father, I thank you needed to remind each other through your word that it is not a strong faith that saves but a strong Christ and so we thank you that the feeblest faith there are some here who are perhaps holding on by a string the weakest faith if it is true receives all of the riches of Christ the same measure that the strongest faith does and so we thank you that it is the strength of your Son that has saved us. That we are held, that we are secured, that we are seated with him in the heavenly places. That we are hidden with him in you. And that where he has gone, we will be also. Thank you that he has gone to prepare a place for us. That he has not left us as orphans. That you will not leave us or forsake us. You are great and greatly to be praised. 
Thank you for Jesus. In his great name we pray. Amen.